I also I also am real stuck on this image of suturing the cold cuts to the mall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I cut a lot of meat, and I don't. I haven't eaten meat really since leaving Wawa, so like, I don't know. I think the I think the cold cut machine haunts me. Um, it was actually kind of a real gross machine. <laughs> what was gross about it? I mean, you know, the meat gets a little sweaty. Your, your gloves smell bad at, at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. This is Queers at the End of the World Presents, a feature where we bring you brief introductions to media made by queer and trans creators. Because every time a queer enjoys another queer's media creation, somewhere along the time stream, all the universities are free. Today on Queers at the End of the World Presents, we're sharing a book which is brand new in 2020 and right on time that I am so ridiculously excited about. It's called We Want It All, an anthology of trans poetics. And guess who's in this here anthology? We've got like C.A. Conrad and Chingy Chen and Zandria Phillips and Ari Benias and Leslie Feinberg and Sylvia Rivera and Lou Sullivan. And guess who else is in it? One Nat Mesnard, co-host of this very podcast. Tell me about this experience of being part of this project, Nat. It's so awesome to have poems in here. I um, submitted work because I know one of the editors of the anthology, Andrea Abby Karam, and I love everything Nightboat does. Yeah, Nightboat is amazing. Yes. I was really excited about it, and I had a couple poems that were indeed about gender. <laughs> and <Shocking. laughs> I, I know. <laughs> And I was really excited to send them to some folks that I thought would would get what I was doing. So it's amazing to be in here with all of these incredible, incredible writers. You know, I'm still spending time with this with this work. Um, it's been out for a few months now, and I think um, accumulating recognition. And so um, it's just really awesome. It's so awesome. There's kind of a tie-in for We Want It All with... Um, some of the ways that we've been talking about apocalypse on this podcast too. There's a quote from the foreword by Kay Gabriel where she writes, against the common sense intuition that crisis means we must demand less, we assert with our comrades that everything has to change for anything to continue. The title of this volume is therefore entirely literal. What we want is nothing other than a world in which everything belongs to everyone. I love that. I love the idea that I think is something that we've really been digging around in the entire season of the show, which is that like a queer and trans approach to apocalypse is, is about abundance and transformation and openness to change and not about scarcity and, and like fear. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it articulates so many of the thoughts I've had in, you know, hearkening all the way back with games to our conversation with Triandria, Rustworm, where we imagined forward the ends of The Last of Us 1 and 2. Yeah. And we imagined forward into a critical queer utopia and a future in art and in community for Ellie and crisis as a way of bringing about a transition where we can make this demand that the world ha be one where everything belongs to everyone. Would you read one of the poems that you've got in here? I would be happy to. So I actually, I wanted to read 
um, the poem I have in here that I wrote when you and I met at the Kenyan Review Young Writers Workshop. I'm so excited. So the poem is titled Projection in Retrograde. Scorpio, it's time for contemplation. Hear this. My life has been a hologram. History has no mirror but stars misaligned, a thousand tessellated lichens, and I have been trying to read them. I admit a particular astrology, girl, boy, body, as brown moth come to rest in the lee of an eye. Magnetism is forecast. You may force a silk rose through one eye of the 3D moving image. And when Justin Timberlake brings sexy back at summer's bravura performance, some rosé all-day DIY backyard wedding, you may, no, you will, go get down. Say of the synth pink thread coming through the eye, it's made of stone. Stone from which hangs stones, grave markers wearing tessellated lichens. The pattern gets so misaligned. Please, Scorpio, read this horoscope sober as a moth. My whole life has been a hologram, a history of body as bangled, begging hand. But you, you're down to reflect on what you're transmitting, aren't you? Or what did you mean when, leaving advice in the guest book that evening, drunk on your own stars, notion of goodbye, you wrote, wear each other's clothes? Ah, I love that poem so much. I always feel kind of vulnerable reading it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's how you know you get a good one. <laughs> it's also delights me to um, announce to our listening audience that that's the first of many moths on this here program. <laughs> We're going to be joined uh, in just a few minutes by Holly Raymond, who's another poet who's got work in We Want It All. And Holly is someone, Nat, that you met through the anthology right and and she's also got moths mothman in one of the poems she's gonna read yes so i heard holly read for one of the launch events they did for we want it all and because of covid uh, all the launches were zoom and i was watching it in sort of zoom mode and we were rolling through all these poets everybody's work interesting in a different way and I was kind of in that hypnosis of just watching things on the screen that we've all been in for so long now. Mm. And I remember when Holly came on, I just snapped something in my brain to attention. Mm. And mm -hmm. suddenly I sat up and I, I like looked in the anthology and actually read the text. And I was like, this is one of the only writers I've read who can write about or use the language of video games in a way mm. that reflects the physical and mental and emotional experience I have of games mm -hmm. as a site of creativity, as a site of gender queerness. She was kind enough to agree to come and read some of her work on the show. And then as soon as we got to talking, we just didn't want to stop. So what started as a poetry reading pretty quickly turned into like very nearly a full length yeah. episode. Um, <laughs> so we're really excited to share We Want It All with you and 
having started there, we're also really excited to share our conversation with Holly. She'll be reading a bunch of her poems from the anthology, and also she'll be sharing some newer work at the end of the conversation as well. All right, so we're going to start with Holly Raymond reading one of her poems from the Nightboat anthology, We Want It All. Okay, awesome. Yeah. This first one is called Secret Mission Orders for Goblin Romantic. The dream is to be moved by anything at all. By this Garfield fan comic in which John collapses on the kitchen floor, linked triangles and hoops painted onto a wall stretching three storefronts, mannequins in full plate clutching their scabbards, folded t-shirts, the shape of a dreadnought through glass wearing all denim. Pass through a cloud of vape smoke in the canned Isinglass department, exit bawling at the beauty of all manifest creation. You will aspire to enter into labor translucent like a paraffin sheet, wet and flammable, light passing through shape. Alchemy is based on such a fluidity of exchange. All my affect splattering out into the public sphere, cathecting onto every measly beloved thing. You are to be compensated unfairly for your infinite labor. Work your little mitts to the marrow, scraping every feel from every surface, squirreling away a bit here, a bit there, to balance the scales, to furnish your home with objects of attention. Popcorn chicken festering under plastic, somebody else's keys. Goblin in the streets, bugbear in the sheets, and under the paving stones, defeat. This will all be according to plan. In Goblin Mall, still melancholic, inexplicably still reedy and thick with unchecked pips and teeth, still gnawing the fibers from the goblin bills, still holding that nothing up to the light and muttering. Such discontent to see the star twist out of view and know the malls shall die anon, anon. How the bridge shudders against the bridge and the bridge in turn goes coughing shyly. You, paid in double exposure, walking as it were on beetle shells. Say to the vast red eye overhead, you don't know, you only work here and after work sleep in the model beds for fun. It's mostly pretense. Sun through the fake palms and skylights, total carapace to cup you in. Oh, in a worker's armor, the vile smell of it. In love with product, steal what you vend. Pedal as a mediator. Touch a stranger's hand to pass what's craved. Squander, your smoke breaks are infinite. Watch tapes to lazily know each name as a grunt or a whistle. Pockets fat with surplus, fingers deep in the salad bar. Gloves off, you are married to my crime habitus. Your earbuds and chargers and red vouchers slipped into my burlap sack will someday come gaily to call me mom. In Goblin Mall, all the flowers are cops. They sing your title. All the birds are cops, too. Every beautiful thing you remember is named from a poem. That's cops, baby. I know not where you go to. Hands in the apron. Head low through every hanging garden. The cars for kids wobbling on their motors and tithe. The perfume of the dogwoods calling you to your arrest calling your wage out as nemesis and absentia, unstoppable and demure, and 10,000% fired. Thank you so much. Let me ask you, Holly, a little bit about Goblin Mall, if I may. And I was going to ask you if you could talk briefly about the origins of Goblin Mall and how you kind of invented this location or setting or idea. Yeah, um, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the east coast convenience store chain wawa yes um but i i worked at a wawa for you know quite a while and um the big kind of get was when you were allowed to um 
use the meat slicer. Uh, which <laughs> they don't. Uh, as I understand it, they don't have meat like big industrial meat slicers anymore. They get prepackaged meat. Um, but it was something I really wanted to do. But it was also something I had this trepidation about and was just sort of fixated uh, at the time on this image of like, you know, what could go wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of slicing up of, of the body and, and this sort of gory, visceral way. And also in this sense of like, how kind of alien the, the cold cut feels compared to, you know, the haunch of the animal. Um, and I was working with that image and not really getting anywhere and then um, I saw these YouTube videos of some guy just sort of walking around abandoned malls. And I, I happened on one where he was kind of walking around the mall that was sort of like the the central orbit of my adolescence. Oh, wow. Um, and it was just sort of so uncanny that I was kind of like, I've n- never worked at, in a mall, actually. But my actual, like, honest biographical interfacing with this sh- the shopping mall is entirely social. But I was trying to find a way to sort of suture these two kind of strands together. And I thought of Goblin Market, the Rossetti poem, which, you know, it's never stopped freaking me out. This sort of link that it has between sort of this um, sumptuariness and this sort of undercurrent of queerness and also this element of like almost cannibalistically, you know, corrosive desire, like this sense of slaking your appetite in this really kind of um, surplus oriented way being the cause of this retribution that is just um, this waste. An appetite that can never be slaked. Yeah. And so I became really interested with the image of the, the dead mall as kind of like this um, necropolis or something um, where kind of the narrative of traversing it is sort of split between uh, what I wanted to be this kind of um, fleshy, meaty traversal of something that is decaying, kind of put in tension with this really kind of overloaded surplus of language, this sort of greediness, this kind of hungriness um, that I tried to sort of... um, give as an attribute of the characters uh, that are living uh, within this space. I think that the found language that I read in your work is definitely part of what drew me to it. I feel those moments of poetry when I find language in my own daily life. And it's really exciting to see some of the language you find and put in, which I feel like other writers aren't always selecting that particular language. And I, I find it so rich. Well, thank you. I was just sort of thinking about, you know, Nathaniel Mackey has that concept of the rasp, um, this kind of underlying noise or kind of fuzz or interference that underlies language, this kind of element that is pushing against it. And as I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to read here, I was thinking about how meaningful to me um, the really kind of old initial janky localization of Final Fantasy Tactics is. Mm-hmm. Um Wait, explain that a little bit more for the non-gamer in the group. <laughs> I, I, I can't name names, but um, just because I don't know them. Um, but this game was localized uh, in the late 90s. And what I guess was really hasty or by people who weren't kind of fluent in both Japanese or English, 
So it's this really idiosyncratic, really kind of peculiar language that, you know, for a long time was kind of the butt of jokes that, you know, in the um, mid-aughts when it was relocalized, um, was kind of smoothed out and refined so that on the one hand, the plot actually makes sense. But on the other, the language is kind of flattened into this sort of generic um, kind of Game of Thrones speech. And I, I loved that I just had internalized and sort of knew by heart this kind of accidental poetics, these phrases that are so rich and strange that were completely kind of the result of mistranslation and misapprehension yeah. and kind of the beauty in what on some level was this total failure of translation. Oh, I love that. I feel like there's something here for us too around like, I don't know, Nat and I have been talking a lot lately about this sort of idea of individualism and, you know, how much it kind of gets in the way of thinking about survival in the ways that we need to as queer folks. That legacy of like the importance of the individual doesn't really serve us very well. And I know in your scholarly work, you write about poets who are kind of channeling other voices that aren't their own in their writing. And so also just really interested and excited about the ways that you're finding ways to kind of bring down these multiple voices and like acknowledge all of the voices that go into what we call like this internal voice, this like internal monologue or subjectivity that, that we pretend poets are putting on the page, this like solid self that doesn't really exist and is actually made up of so many other. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, especially what you were saying about this sort of myth of the individual as this survivor and as this sort of self-sufficient unit or capsule. That always felt like such a failure of the imagination to me, not only as a queer person, but also as a writer. It was kind of the most kind of tooth grating thing for me in undergrad workshops and graduate workshops. This failure to acknowledge that, you know, I, I, I think even if you are, I don't know, Sharon Olds or Keats or something, you're kind of rummaging through your own like internal recycling bin or garbage dumpster. You're doing collage work. You know, maybe you're supplying the paste or the paper or whatever, but you're making something out of the scraps you've assembled. I, I think you have to acknowledge that you're always borrowing. Um, you're always stealing. And that sort of the share of labor performed by this kind of atomistic self is... Um, kind of vanishingly measly. It feels really connected with like, we've talked a little bit about disaster preparedness and coping with crisis or coping with chaos as being something that is like this distributed thing. And it's something that we're all just like sort of one node in this larger like kind of network of people who are all working on this together. And being aware of that is a mentality we've we've spent a lot of time thinking about. I uh, I had a Y2K prepping experience in my family history that was very individualistic and, you know, technology fear driven. And we've, we've really talked about like alternate ways of looking at that kind of fear that are based on kind of giving up this like arbitrary notion of being an individual who can render oneself safe by anticipating and being prepared and so forth. So I feel like this line of discussion really jives with that, even though we're not directly talking about disaster in any particular way. Totally. Well, can we hear another poem? Yeah. Um, the second one is called One or Several Goblin Girl Workers Dreaming in Unison of the Mothman. In my dream, its tongue was colloidal silver. In my dream, it was a hunter on the earth. 
In my dream, the bridges rumble, not in fracture, but in desire. In my dreams, we all tied flashlights to helium balloons to frighten the townsfolk. In my dream, the Mothman took me in its maw like a cough drop. In my dream, a great machine called the Steam Man of the Prairie levels all the walls. But when all hope seems lost, a different, albeit very similar, machine called the Steam Man of the Plains comes charging in and restores them. We all watched helpless, but knew the Mothman had a plan for all things that would shake out okay. In my dream, the Mothman held the code to pop the till. In my dream, the Mothman barges in at closing with no shoes and no shirt. In my dream, the Mothman tips and feathers and cases in amber. In my dream, I was slain by the beat of its wings in the middle of karaoke. I stood there in front of all my dead friends, singing a beautiful girl group bop called Tokyo Grifter. The sun shone over and around me, gleaming, and when I woke, I cried that it didn't exist, nor I to sing it or nab it up and vanishing. In my dream, its shirt is too little. I dream it glows like a bicycle reflector. I dream the vortex is spinning closer. In my dream, the moon turns around and it has the Mothman's face. It winks and blows smoke from its great cigar, obscuring the city. The people smash windows. Everybody coughs for hours. In my dream, I am its wife. I have it made. I sit by the pool drinking my drink and dragging my green toes through the shallow end. It travels for work. An empty instant pot and a big brown bag full of vegetables and meat. I am noble in an activity. I await the Mothman's coming. In my dream, we duck beneath the table to avoid it. In my dream, it is bossed around intolerably. In my dream, instead of money, it strokes our palms gently and shows us in its big red eyes some premonition of our future happiness. In an exchange, we fill its canvas bag with bottles of soda, green and red radishes, soap, and ginger. In my dream, money, but with the Mothman's face on one side and a crude map of the mall on the other. It says, one billion moth bucks and can't buy anything. In my dream, its swordplay cuts me down to size in the field of love, primrose, poppies, etc. In my dream, the mare swimming up through the wreckage, grasping towards something. In my dream, moth dust snuffs me up to a further sleep behind the anchor store under the clover of the hills. I dream of stress corrosion cracking in an eye bar on a suspension chain. I dream of acting up all level 99 cut out against the sun and auspicious of a limit break of a soft stat cap. In my dream, the Mothman crashes in with a gun and we huddle idly in the walk-in freezer. In my dream, it lists its demands for 18 days and 18 nights without stopping for breath. I dream of grinding mobs until it's boring. I'm given a free longbow, but I throw it out. It's garbage. In my dream, it never ends, but keeps crashing into some civic flame or another, burning with a deep howl, pressing its huge form against the bunker walls, against the plate windows, in my dream, the going out of business sale is permanent and the savings live forever, like God does. A thing in a white plastic bag, a fake happiness, but still. And then the uh, footnote to that poem. Correction. False. Every goblin has the same dream, the same dream every night. They dream of killing their bosses. In their dreams, they advance with giant red hedge trimmers. They advance with TNT sticks like piano keys arranged inside their mouths. In their sleep, they make their move with the mallet or the anvil or the conveyor belt with buzz saws attached. The mall is on fire. It is tied to the train tracks and the train is coming. Or in some versions, the mall blooms anew. A million pale blue flowers exploding from the meadow. Bosses chopped up for scrapple. Boss soup. Boss cake. In the cold Yukon, they look at the boss and the boss's head is a big cooked turkey. They all consume the boss's boiled shoe with boiled boss foot soft inside. A million goblin hands on a million goblin pitchforks. 
the crowd has their back. The crowd's hand pulls the lever with the smooth, smoothness of a single hand in the dreams of goblins. When the bridge falls, their eyes pop out of their sockets and their tongues flap down the corridors like long wet carpets, and their voices say auga. Steam comes out of their ears. This is a shorthand that means they're happy or kind of turned on. It's known that each one smiles in its sleep to the melody of gigantic violence, but what can you do? Anyway, so that's what goblins dream about. I love that. I also I also am thinking about Goblin Mall and work in retail spaces and this idea of crisis. I feel like that's a perfect, great way into it because it makes me think of how the workplace, especially lower wage retail work and restaurants and malls and also home offices and classrooms and these spaces have this particular role in the cultural experience of this crisis moment that we're all living in. And in Goblin Mall, I feel like you're just really ambivalent or the poetic voice (laughs) is super ambivalent about crisis. Like the Mothman is a destroyer of worlds and also just like a bringer home of bacon to the beauty by the pool. And um, like, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your connection, what the connection is for you between crisis and apocalypse and this like wild banality of the workplace. Um. Yeah, I mean, for me, the recurrence of the Mothman is just down to the fact that I um, I adore the Mothman prophecies, the John Keel book. I think the ambivalence of the Mothman, even just on, you know, the basic what is this thing and what is it doing, mm. uh, is really fascinating because he never really resolves whether the Mothman is indirectly causing disaster, the bridge collapse and things, or if the Mothman is this sort of benign figure, sort of like this weird kind of Cassandra type thing. Yeah, it's standing there. It's 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 a witness, but it's not something that can intervene. It's something that can only be kind of interacted with and only kind of responded to in this retrospective sense. Huh. That makes me think about this sort of phenomenon of talking about distraction and like the difficulty of getting work done and the sort of like exchange of like memes and and motivational videos about how it's okay that we're not getting anything done at work and that we're all doom scrolling instead of producing and you know of course that's like aimed at like a very particular kind of worker like Mm -hmm. you know when i when i'm building gardens i'm not doom scrolling (laughs) no matter what but there's this sort of thing about like witnessing and not being able to respond to history as it's happening and the sort of like what you're supposed to be doing you're supposed to be working like being in this like historical and also spatial situation of being undermined from your like ability to participate yeah i sort of think about it as kind of like this corollary or this critique of the poetics of witness where it's kind of the work of witnessing as this um really indulgent or even kind of really luxuriant rubbernecking Mm where it's both kind of the sumptuary pleasure, but it's also corrosive in a sense. Uh, I, I think for me, one of the like really densest and most like just kind of like gut level satisfying images of the last four years is um, Trump grimacing directly into the eclipse for some reason. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that so much. I, I think about the Mothman in this book is kind of the same thing. This object that has this kind of ocular gravity and has this kind of like interpretive message to share, but that is also kind of both pleasurable and really dangerous to stare too long at. You don't think he's just like, the sun is losing very bad. 
<laughs> well, I feel like there's something there almost where it's like, if you're you're thinking of it along the lines of something that's both pleasurable and dangerous to look at, to me, that evokes the idea of looking at screens and like seeing an image of Trump looking at the sun on a screen. Mm-hmm. Like, because for me, like there is this sense of doom scrolling as like this thing you're staring into and it's pleasurable and dangerous in that way of like, you know, this is an addictive process. Systems have designed to stimulate like the pleasure centers in your brain and the underlying design interacts with that. And it's dangerous to let yourself kind of without control engage with those systems. And, you know, a lot of the social bad that's come from those is on display and like Trump being banned from Twitter and so forth. It's coming into the public consciousness now, the sort of dual nature of the systems and how they've been a part of the ongoing political crisis that we've been in for the for the last four years. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think you can trace that back, you know, a super long time. I'm thinking of sort of the register of like um, 17th century plague tracks from London, mm-hmm. where they're both completely apocalyptic. Uh, the phrase from them um, that always sticks with me is, whoa, whoa, we all shall die. Um, But they're also like ecstatic, you know, the religious ones, obviously, but also to a certain extent, the secular ones. Mm -hmm. Um, They're about this kind of visceral thrill of seeing collapse, um, you know, of seeing all the the silverware swept off the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this makes me want to talk about like Journal of a Plague Year altogether. Oh, yeah. That's that's what I was thinking of in terms of like, you know, the really kind of secular one that still has this like voyeuristic thrill to it. Totally. And if you're going to talk about somebody who's one of the like cultural architects of the individual, um, (laughs) Daniel Defoe is definitely one of them. That's the same, you know, author who wrote Robinson Crusoe and and Journal of a Plague Year is a much more fun book to read. You know, this person wandering through the city in the midst of plague and witnessing and also passing judgment. Yeah, there's a lot of ecstasy there. So the level of how much I want to keep going with this is like extreme. And I'm I'm now like, we should, we could talk for like four hours about this stuff. No lie. I, I do want to respect your time, Holly, which has been absolutely a gift. Thank you so much. Before you go, would you read a couple more for us? Yeah. Uh, and the last two I want to read are from the newer book, uh, Heaven's Wish to Destroy All Mind, um, which came out maybe just a month or two ago from Awoa Press. And this is from uh, the title poem, This Sonnet Crown that uses some language from the aforementioned uh, early localization of Final Fantasy Tactics. The ones I'm going to read in particular also uh, borrow some phrases from Julian Brolaski's book, Gowanus Atropolis, um, one of my favorite things of all time. So from towards the end of the Sonnet Crown. 13, Gilgame Heart. O shivering, plus pleading God to like, like me back. O gentle, to be popped in the gob repeatedly with lasers. O gentle, to pop progesterone at nighttime with cranberry juice. Suck my estradiol swiftly, to follow as the blue jelly rancher is sucked. O tart, hurry, to be another body soon, soon, soon. O whole entire puberty chanting, not another inch, not another pound, skimming new type in cornfields and fake kissing everybody. O oh, originary dame sirs, agriuses, agrii, lung liquid braid plus breastplate proved a model for smoothness plus ludic fealty. Even obsolete in the face of thunder gods, 
Oh, Dame Sir is keeping it real with Excalibur grip. Pearl Barrettes. Oh, the game does know your birthday. It does love you back. And 14. Holy Explosion. Your footmen turning to hard crystal in front of you. I want to be told that I'm good over and over by everyone. I'd prefer to be told that I'm good by everyone forever and be certain via data mining that all of my attacks remain holy in affinity. Great hole in the black tooth, great hole in the weather. Open his aperture and let me return to warm-bloodedness, first principles. A vermin in the armor of language making room for itself. In an idiot dot. I comb my hair with broadswords and use chiton for my raiments. In beauty my feet drag to the station. Permit the sun a drone to exercise its laws. Pay it to swap the food in my mouth with paper. O oh, heaven's wish to destroy all minds, O oh, bended knee, O oh, parted lips. O oh, permanent explosion, O oh, carnage noon. O oh, good virtue to be caught in the radius of its bliss. Woohoo! Thank you. Oh, that was so good. Thank you so much. <laughs> Listeners, you can find Holly Raymond's new book, Heaven's Wish to Destroy All Minds, from Woe Eroa Press, or on bookshop.org. You can find We Want It All, an anthology of radical trans poetics, on bookshop.org, at Nightboat Books, or at your local bookseller. Mall is Lost, the seething goblin retail center from which the goblin poems Holly read tonight originally came, is sadly out of print. But if you go to Adjunct Press, you can still download the PDF and read to your bitter green heart's delight. We'll link both books in the show notes. All right, that's it for this one. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>